0: Father, thank you that you're a God who wants to come close to us. Every breath that we take is a gift from you. Thank you that you are our judge and that you're on our side, that you're not willing that any should perish. Father, we pray that you would touch our hearts afresh. Fathers, we are in the midst of a time in our nation's history when We're facing tragedy after tragedy. We need a sense of rock-solid security in your love. Would you touch our hearts this morning through the power of your word? And would you lead us to trust you more deeply than ever? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you have ever heard about doomsday preppers. Have you heard about doomsday preppers before? Matt told us about a few weeks ago about how he was a doomsday prepper and that now he's more prepped than ever because of the spiritual things God's doing in his heart. Well, apparently there's even a show about this. I haven't seen it myself, but people, they build bunkers, they put a lot of money into stockpiling their food and to getting everything possible uh, safe so that they can endure whatever is coming in this crazy planet. And, and the more that the world gets the way that it's been getting lately, you can kind of understand why some people want to do this, right? I mean, do you kind of long for security after this past week? You know, you, you want to know that it's okay to send your kids off to school and they're going to be okay there. You want to know that it's okay to go to the, the supermarket and everything's going to work out okay. You want to find some sense of security, some sense of safety. Um, and when you go to the gas pump, you want some sense of financial security, right? You're like, man, how in the world am I going to afford this? How am I going to afford going to the grocery store, to the gas pump, uh, inflation? What's going to happen? What do, I, what do I do? How do I handle this? These questions often come to our minds in a, in a world that is unstable. How do we find security? Well, I want to paint a picture of what what an ideal secure situation would be. You know, if we could take Templeton and we could build a wall all the way around. In fact, let's not just build one wall. Let's build four walls separated by a good distance of like 90 feet high. And we'll build it all the way around Templeton. And then let's find a, a A good source of water that will cause the Salinas River to flow really well right through Templeton. So then we've got that. We've got our farm here. We've got all the produce we could want. And then let's stockpile enough food that we could survive for the next 20 years on the food that we have. Does that sound like a pretty good setup? Well, it's pretty amazing because archaeologists have gone and they have unearthed some incredible findings over in Iraq. And they have gone and they've actually dug up. This is the inner walls of the city of Babylon. Massive walls. Some artists try to imagine what the the city of Babylon might have looked like. This this impressive, beautiful, strong city. And we talked last uh, time that we were on the series of Daniel, we talked about how Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up in pride because he was a builder. He built this magnificent city. Well, there were two walls uh, at one point that Nebuchadnezzar eventually decided. You know what? We're going to expand this, and he went out and he built two more outer walls. There were four massive walls. In fact, there were two sets of double walls. The inner walls were 12 feet and 22 feet thick. Right? These high walls that that are difficult to scale and they're super thick so you can't just bring a battering ram and get through them the outer walls were 24 feet and 26 feet thick the ones that nebuchadnezzar had added around the city of babylon but not only that the river euphrates went right through the city I mean, what more can you ask for? You've got this beautiful city. You've got this beautiful land. You can have agriculture within your city. You've got a river flowing through it. They had river gates, so people can't just bring a boat into the city. And they had stockpiled supplies, some say for 20 years. But I mean, with a river and able to grow your produce, who knows how long they could last? And so it's this massive, impregnable city that leads one prepper to be incredibly confident in his preparedness. Go in your Bibles with me if you have your Bible or follow along on the screen to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1. The first word is Belshazzar. Now, it's kind of fun as you're turning there that for a long time skeptics looked at the Bible and they looked at Daniel and they said, Belshazzar? Okay, now we know that the story of Daniel is made up. They were sure of that because all of the historians that we had from the time of close to the the time period of Babylon, uh, before the time of Christ, none of them mentioned Belshazzar, except for later on you have Josephus. I think Josephus may mention him, but he was basing it on a Jewish understanding of things. Well, you know what happened. They began to excavate in Babylon And before long, they're digging up these tablets from Nabonidus. And in other places, they're digging up these tablets from Nabonidus. And pretty soon, it's talking about Belshazzar. So then they said, well, Belshazzar wasn't a king, though. So it took until like 1924, when finally it was published and shown that on this one tablet, it says, and the kingship was given to Belshazzar. And Nabonidus gave it to his son. He was a young young man. He gave it to him as a co-regent while he was off in other parts of the realm. So Belshazzar the king, when we read that, we can read it with confidence because the dirt itself has shown this. The rocks have cried out and and made this clear. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And what does this have to do with prepping? Well, this beautiful, massive feast who's invited to it. His nobles, right? There's, it's the, the upper class is invited to it, the, the ruling class is invited to enjoy this feast together. But outside the city, what's happening? The city is surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. This army is surrounding Babylon. They are under siege. And just two days before. Belshazzar's dad, Nabonidus, was defeated in battle in another part of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians, and he has fled. It gives you kind of a new picture of this feast that's happening. Belshazzar is throwing this feast with confidence in his preparedness, his ability to stand through the coming storm, because he's trusting in those walls. He's trusting in that river. He's trusting in all that he has stockpiled. And he's not worried about the army that's outside the walls. But he only calls the nobles to be there. How would you feel? Imagine that you're a citizen of Babylon. Imagine that you find out, oh yeah, our king, he's throwing a party. Oh cool, do I get to a go? Oh no, it's only for the nobles. Wait, isn't there an, a massive army outside of our city that's sieging us? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But we probably have enough food yeah, so, so we're going to live inside of this trap with this guy who's going to feed and party with the nobles for the next 20 years, and we're going to run out of food and die. It shows how much they care about us. You see how self-serving Belshazzar was. He's glorifying himself. He's partying with his closest friends in the midst of a tragedy that is going on for his city, in the midst of Threatened, threatened danger on the outskirts of his city. Cyrus is outside. Um, we believe Cyrus is the nephew of Darius, who is the king of the Medes and the Persi- uh, Persians at this time. Uh, meanwhile, inside the city, the nobles are partying. They're having a great time. And when you're partying, when you're drinking, some of the the best ideas don't come to you. In fact, Daniel 5 verse 2 says this, while he tasted the wine. I don't know if you've imbibed before, but if you look throughout the Bible, time and time again, story after story, it's not a pretty picture of what happens when people drink. It's not all fun and games. In fact, people make the worst of choices like like their daughters, uh, sleeping with their daughters like Lot did, or a bunch of other terrible things like uh, things that happened to Noah, things that happen time and time again when people are drinking. So while he tasted the wine, while the, that, that, the, the glass was still held to his lips, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father, when it says father, that's his ancestor, um, maybe grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem notice he's going back in history and he's going back to that moment where we talked about how horrific it was for the people in Jerusalem as they were their city was ransacked and they were taken away from their families and the young princes were made eunuchs and put into this uh, re indoctrination school in Babylon All of this had happened, and and he's going back to that as he's there, and and it's kind of interesting. There's a bunch of stuff that could come out of the story, but he and his father were their primary god, some believe, was the moon god, and uh, from studying these tablets, they've discovered that this event took place on October 11 or 12 of 539 BC, and that would have been a full moon, which would have been the time when the moon god was the strongest. And maybe that's what this festival is about. Herodotus talks about there was this festival going on in the city of Babylon. Maybe they're looking to the moon god. Or maybe they're celebrating Marduk. But they're, the thing is, they're, they're remembering that, yeah, there may be an enemy army coming after us. But our god, Bel... He destroyed the God of Jerusalem. We have the vessels from his temple. Let's bring those in here and let's remember that our God is bigger than their God. Let's remember how we took them captive some, what, 66 years ago. Let's remember that moment. And so they go to get the vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem. Good ideas don't come while you're drinking wine. But the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines... Might drink them. Notice who's described here. Who is it that drinks them? The kings, his lords or nobles, his wives, and his concubines. We get this terrible picture of the type of person he was. The Seventh day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 4, puts it this way the concubines were likely women bought for money or captured in war. The only people that were there that weren't nobles were the women who were either married or who were being used for the festivities here at this party. It's not a pretty picture of the way that Belshazzar is treating the human beings around him. And this is the cause of Babylon's fall. As he drinks the wine, verse 4 says, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. What is that reminiscent of to you? What is it? The statue, exactly. You notice that gold, the head of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood is substituted for clay, and then stone. And he's worshiping this this physical reality. Babylon is great, it's wealthy, it's all we need, we've got preparedness here, we're good to go, and he's worshiping the gods that are are connected to those things, and he's lifting up, meanwhile, these holy vessels from the God Yahweh, saying, who's this God? He's weak, he's powerless, and remember that in rejecting that God, he's rejecting the character of that God that we saw in our first time from Daniel's name, He's, he's there, He's our judge. He's on our side. Azariah, he's our helper. Yahweh is our helper. He's the one who is merciful and, and gracious, Hananiah means. This, this incredibly beautiful God is totally being rejected. And Belshazzar's character is reflecting the reality that he has rejected this God. Does that make sense? The God that we serve, the God that, that captures our imagination, even if he goes by the name of the true God, If he is not filled with the character of what God is really like, we begin to reflect that character. Well, in the midst of that drunken feast, suddenly a hand appears and begins to write on the wall. Can you think of another time in the Bible when a hand wrote on the wall? I mean, not on the wall, but when when God's hand wrote. Ten Ten Commandments. We're going to come back to that. And this hand writes, and it shocks the king and his guests, in fact, they're so shocked that verse six says, then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Why was this so incredibly troubling? I mean, why didn't he assume when he saw these, these letters on the wall, why didn't he immediately assume, ah, the gods have sent a blessing. I just need to figure out what blessing they sent me. The gods aren't on his side. And, and maybe it's also the fact that he recognizes the guilt from the life that he's been living, the way that he's treating these women, the way that he's treating the people in Babylon as he is feasting on their provisions to survive a siege. Maybe guilt is what led him to totally be broken in this moment. He calls for the wise men and the enchanters, the sorcerers, to to interpret the, the writing on the wall, and they're unable to do so. And then his countenance changes again, it gets even worse, and he's even more troubled until finally somebody comes into the room. It's the queen mother, some modern translations note that this wasn't his wife, but this is likely his, his mom or, or some, somebody that was of royalty before him. And she comes in and she says, there's somebody that can do it. And this somebody has not been invited to the feast. This is somebody who's, who's not there. But she reminds him of their history and what God had done in their history. How God had showed up to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. And how he had humbled him and how he had, well actually no, he's going to remind him of that later. But reminded of how he had interpreted dreams. Daniel had interpreted dreams many times. And she says, the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is in him. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the Holy God. What we need more than anything is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. When did that happen? That happened back in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is probably about 20 years old. At this point in time, Daniel is 84 years old about. That's the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This has been a long time, and we know that in the latter half of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he's still in this position because in Daniel chapter 4, when he comes to interpret the dream about the tree, he's called the chief of the magicians. So he's held this position for decades, and she reminds Belshazzar about this. And Daniel's not at the feast. Daniel wasn't invited. This tells us that, that there are at least a thousand people now in the realm. You know, Daniel went from being number two to now there's a thousand people that get invited to the king's party and Daniel's not invited. Daniel is not present. Daniel is no longer chief of the magicians. Daniel is no longer a part of the authority that is taking place in Babylon. He no longer has this position. Well, remember that Daniel's advice, in fact, you know, one of the only times that we find Daniel giving advice to the king that we see written down was in Daniel chapter 4, what we talked about last time, where he said to the king after interpreting this beautiful tree and what his, he was to do in nourishing the subjects that were are under him. Daniel had said to Nebuchadnezzar, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor or to the oppressed. This is the kind of advice that Daniel gave to kings, and this didn't match Belshazzar's lifestyle. Belshazzar wanted to enjoy the goods for himself, not to disperse them for the poor, not to allow the oppressed to go free. This wasn't what Belshazzar wanted, and so we find that although Daniel has been in top ranks in the government in in Babylon, number two in power for decades, probably 40, 50 years. He's not even invited to a feast of a thousand of the rulers, but it gets even crazier. Verse 13, watch this. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, look at what he says to Daniel. Are you that Daniel? Now, the queen mother had introduced him as Belteshazzar, uh, whose name is originally Daniel, but he uses his his Hebrew name. Are you that Daniel who is one of the what captives from? Does that blow your mind? <laughs> this guy was the number two guy in the government for fifty years, maybe <laughs> thirty to fifty years. And here you have the next king, or the, the co-king, saying, are you Daniel? Are you one of the captives? Are you, are you one of those exiles that my father came and destroyed your city and took you and made you a eunuch? Like, Are you one of those guys? Do you see the disrespect here? Do you see the, the total lack of concern and care? Do you see the, the idea that We're the Chaldeans. We're the Babylonians. You? You're one of those exiles. You're still a captive. Are you kidding? He has served Babylon. He sought the peace of Babylon for decades, for his entire life. He's now 84 years. From the time he was 18 to 84 years, he has been seeking the welfare of Babylon. He's been there whenever a king needed him. And all Belshazzar has to say to him is, are you one of the captives from Judah whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? And he goes on to say, well, I've heard that you can interpret dreams and that, the Holy, that there's a spirit of the gods. He doesn't say Holy Spirit in you. Daniel is seen as a captive. He's seen as an exile. He's seen as one who's not part of us, another race, another ethnicity. He doesn't matter to Belshazzar. Notice in Jeremiah, a contemporary of Daniel, Jeremiah who had written that letter about seeking the peace of Babylon, Jeremiah 50, verse 33, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The children of Israel were oppressed, along with the children of Judah. Okay, they both were taken captives in different time, but it also references Judah being taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. All who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to what? You catch that? Jeremiah says, they are refusing to let them go. They will not set them free. They will not liberate them. They're oppressing them. They're holding them bonded, in bondage. Belshazzar is now treating Daniel like an exile, like a captive, and he won't let God's people go free. But <laughs> I love how it continues. Verse 34, their Redeemer is strong. Friends, your Redeemer is strong. You may feel held captive by a multiplicity of things in your life, but your Redeemer is strong is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case. God is your judge and he's on your side and he's longing to take up your case in court. He's longing to justify you. That he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. He'd allowed the Israelites to go into captivity because of the way that they had acted, the things that they had done. But now he's saying Babylon is oppressing my people, and I will not tolerate this. I will not allow this to go on. Education, page 176, says it this way. Instead of being a protector of men, like that tree is designed to be, Babylon became a proud and cruel oppressor. The words of inspiration picturing the cruelty and greed of rulers in Israel reveal the secret of Babylon's fall. The same reason that Israel fell is the same reason that Babylon fell. And of the fall of many another kingdom since the world began. So let's look at this. What does it look like? Quoting from Ezekiel chapter 34. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. You hold a party with a thousand people, the nobles, the good people, and the the, the, the ruling class, and you're feeding them. And you don't worry about your flock. You're mistreating those who are oppressed, those who are poor among you. The weak you have not strengthened. Nor have you healed those who are sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. You don't care about the people that you're ruling over. But with force and cruelty, you have ruled them. We've looked at how the kingdoms of this world time and time again have said, if we just get a bigger gun, if we just have a bigger way, if we just have more force, and God says, that's not how I rule. My kingdom is a completely different kind of kingdom. Somebody should say hallelujah. God doesn't rule with force and cruelty. That's the way that every kingdom has gone. That's why every kingdom has ended up falling. But God's kingdom is not like that. So Daniel looks at Belshazzar, and he doesn't mince words. <laughs> he's straight up with him. And I'm not going to get into all the details of Daniel chapter 5 with you, but go back and read it and see the things that he has to say to him. He reminds him of this history. He reminds him that your father, Nebuchadnezzar, when he was proud, was humbled by my God, Yahweh. And after seven years, when he, repent, he ate grass, uh, he was finally restored to his senses and God restored him to his kingship. But then he goes on to say, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you, what does it say? Knew all this. Are you Daniel? Oh, who are you? You're one of the captives. Yeah, you're one of those people. Oh, who are you? You knew this, Belshazzar. You knew all of this. And yet, you did not humble your heart. Remember, we looked at what humbling our heart looks like. It's not about thinking less of ourselves, but it's about thinking of ourselves less. Another way to put it, Desire of Ages, page 623, says, The life must be cast into the furrow of the world's needs. You want to humble yourself? Look around you and enter into the needs of other people. Look around you and say, What does my neighbor need? And your neighbor doesn't mean the same person in the country club with you. It means the person down the street who can barely afford their rent or who just got kicked out of their home. It means to be there for the world in need. And then self-love, self-interest will perish or must perish. He looks at him. He says, look, you refuse to humble yourself. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You, they have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your Lord, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of, now notice this, what does he say? The gods of silver and gold. Do you remember how it was earlier in the chapter? What did it start with? Daniel is already telling him, this is what's happening. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? The head is going to be replaced by the silver. Now I'm going to list silver first. You praise the gods of silver and gold. And iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not acknowledged. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He says the the God who's close to you, though you thought you're so much superior to him, you thought your God is so much superior to him, He's, he's the one that Hold your breath in his hand. Every breath you take. Just take a deep breath right now. Breathe out. Thank you, God. Every breath comes from God. That's how close he is. That's how personal he is. That's how loving he is, which is not the picture of the gods of Babylon as we've looked at time and time again. And he's the one who owns all your ways. He knows every step of your life. And you Belshazzar have not glorified him. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. That word was twice on the wall, because maybe because there were two kings. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. There's a sign that there's, there's an accountability. And we look at the world and we say, man, people are getting away with egregious stuff. There's a judge who's going to take care of it. It's not your responsibility. There's a God who holds people accountable. Just five days before this moment was the Day of Atonement in the Jewish calendar. And maybe it was then that God was calculating and weighing what was going on in the heart of Belshazzar and Nabonidus. God has numbered your kingdom, He's accounted for it and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. This picture of justice, you've been weighed on one side with what your character should be like based upon the light you've received on the other side. And you have been found wanting. Now, I find it interesting that it doesn't say you have been found too heavy. You're you're too heavy. It's not a focus upon the things so much maybe that he has done as maybe it's a focus on what he has lacked, what he has not done, what he has neglected to do. And I get this idea because when I look at the final judgment, what is the final judgment about? Matthew chapter 25 tells us, and the book Christ Object Lesson points it out, that it hinges, turns upon one point. How we have helped the poor, the stranger, the person in prison. What we've done for them is the most important thing in the judgment. And yet we're worried about, Our checklist of like, did I do this today? Did I do this today? Oh no, I better, and and don't get me wrong. We want to overcome sin in our life. Sin chains us down. We've got to get rid of those things, but it doesn't come by looking at your checklist. It comes by looking at Jesus. And it comes by looking at Jesus and the people around us. It comes by giving ourselves for the world's need. That's what will bring us humility of heart, like God wants to give us. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Education page 183 says, Only that which is bound up with God's purpose and expresses his character can endure. It's that rock cut out without hands. It's that tree that Nebuchadnezzar was designed to be. His principles are the only steadfast things our world knows. You want a rock solid foundation? Base your life upon the principles that God has given in his word. Live your life based upon his, his self-sacrificing character of love. You can count on being prepared no matter what comes. You're going to be able to say with Matt, I'm more prepared than I've ever been in my life, even though I don't have a farm in my, in my, like I was planning on at home anymore. Instead, I'm out farming for other people. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So historians tell us what happened. Cyrus was outside the city and he decides that he's going to keep some of his soldiers right there and he's going to take some others up to this lake where the river Euphrates, remember they're relying on the river Euphrates that's coming through Babylon. That very source of strength for them. And this, this ties in in so many ways. Look at Revelation 18 sometime when you have time, 17 and 18. And look at the final prophecies about how the world will will experience the fall of Babylon in the end. There's so many ties to this. We're not going to get into that today. But he looks at this river and he decides to divert it. And he sends part of his army up. And Herodotus tells us that he diverts the river away from the city of Babylon. And he tells his soldiers that are down near the walls of Babylon, the second that you see that get low enough so that you can wade into the river, so that you can be able to go under the river gates, then march into the city. And so when the river gets low enough, they go in through the river gates. And they go in through that river bed. And they're able to bypass those strong walls that Belshazzar was trusting in. <laughs> and, and no matter how big of a bum- bunker we have, no matter how much food we have stored up, how do you know that that's going to be exactly what you need in the end? Only God can lead you in the path. And the path is to give and give and give. And they came into the city now, it's pretty fascinating. We'll look at it here in a second. But as they came into the city, there was very little resistance. And they were able to get right into the, the party where Belshazzar was, maybe right as Daniel was finishing his interpretation of the dream. But um, there's so much here. Anyway, But let's go to Isaiah chapter 44. This is written 150 years before this took place in 539 B.C. Notice what God says. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. The same language that... Jeremiah is picking up 150 years later. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. Now let's see who he's talking to. I'm the Lord who makes all things, who frustrates the signs of the babblers. Babylon, babblers, confusion. I'm the one who frustrates their signs and drives diviners mad. You remember the astrologers, the enchanters, they can't figure out what's going on. Who turns wise men backward and their knowledge And makes their knowledge foolishness. They simply can't come up with the answers time and time again in the book of Daniel. Who confirms the word of his servant. Daniel's prophecies are being confirmed right at this moment in Belshazzar's feast. And performs the counsel of his messengers. Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to set you free. I will liberate you. To the, and to the cities of Judah, you shall be built up, and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, notice this, be dry, and I will, what does that say? Dry up your rivers. You know, secular scholars have, have gotten so befuddled by this being in the book of Isaiah that they have have decided that there must be two authors to the book of Isaiah, or more than that actually, in order for this to have, because he couldn't have been writing 150 years before the event and decided that the rivers were dried up. And not only that, but to name the very one who would drive up the rivers. Notice verse 28, who says of Cyrus, the general who is leading the army under the river gates, who says of Cyrus, he is my, what is that word? Shepherd. Shepherd. You remember God is looking for somebody who will shepherd his people, who will watch out for the lost, who will minister to those in need, rather than a cruel and oppressive tyrant. And he shall perform all my pleasure. My will is that nobody should be lost. Thus says the Lord to his, oh, this, this just blows my mind. Thus says the Lord to his, what's that word? Anointed. Anointed. The, the word in Hebrew is Mashiach. You, you know where that, what that becomes? Messiah. Messiah. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah. It was sometimes used for the high priest or the king who was anointed by God. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, to Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, whose right hand I have held. I've held you by the hand, Cyrus, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. As they come in the river gates, they get to the piers by the river and there's something that happens in that the gates are open. And some historians say that it was uh, some rebels within the city who opened the gates. Cyrus himself actually said that it was the people within the city were so excited to get out from under Nabonidus's rule that they came and bowed at his feet when he came in the city. They're sick of the way they're being treated. Notice, Education page 177 talking about this. says, The nations rejected God's principles, and in this rejection, wrought their own ruin. How did the fall of Babylon happen? They oppressed people. They oppressed them until they got sick of it, and they rose up, and they allowed the people to come in the city. They oppressed people, and we're going to find out more about why even Belshazzar died on this night. Verse 45, verse 2 says, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I have named you, though you have not known me. You know, Cyrus, when he talks about this, he talks about the God Marduk coming to him and giving him the instructions to go into the city of Babylon. But notice, Yahweh says, actually, I'm the one that's been showing up to Cyrus. I'm the one that's holding his hand. He doesn't even know me, but I'm leading him. There's a lot of people on this planet who don't yet know that Jesus is the one guiding them. We don't have a monopoly on God. I know this comes across as a shock, but the Holy Spirit is working everywhere on this planet. Those who don't even know him, he's grabbing them by the hand. He's got their breath in his hands, and he's leading everyone who's willing to be led by him. We don't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. Cyrus is a Messiah, a Messiah figure. Well, as he goes into the city, one of his generals actually, and they come into the banquet hall. The reason that, uh, I'm forgetting the name, but it's Socrates' student who writes about this moment. The reason that they say Belshazzar was killed is because Nabonidus had been out on a hunting trip. And on that hunting trip, he had killed one of the Persian generals, son and so when that Persian general got into this feast he saw Belshazzar and he said hmm my son was killed by his dad so I'm killing that guy's son and Belshazzar was killed that night well I'm gonna take you back about 20 what was it 16 years ago 17 years ago um, I was on an airplane and I was exhausted I was sleeping really well. It's the middle of the night. You notice most normal people on the plane were sleeping, except for my wife and, and my mom. Um, I had actually thrown up the entire way to the airport. was on the way to a mission trip in Kenya, and we were just praying that somehow I could hold it together enough to get on the plane. It was before the time of, you know, pandemics, or at least that we treated our illness like that. Anyway, probably spreading a lot of germs on that plane, but <laughs> I was sleeping really good. And then we got to London, and we had a, a layover of about eight hours in London. And my dad said, you know, one thing you need to do, we need to make sure that, that we go around and we see different sites in the eight hours we have here. And one of the things, let's go to the, the British Museum in London. And so we went into the British Museum. And, and while we were there, I didn't, I didn't know much about the Bible uh, history, I might say, or archaeology at that point. But he's like, you know, we've got to see the Cyrus Cylinder. What's the Cyrus Cylinder? Well, when we saw it, I didn't think much of it, but the more that I've begun to study the story, I've realized something beautiful and powerful. We found this in the, uh, in the uh, foundations of the gate of Babylon. Cyrus had had, got, had it buried there, and it tells about his conquering of Babylon. And I'm just going to highlight a couple of things here. Maybe we'll have time to come back more in in a future uh, one of our series. But notice the things that Cyrus claims. He says that, that the people within the city of Babylon, they are so fed up with the way that the yoke of Nabonidus and Belshazzar is so heavy upon their necks that their god Marduk has gotten upset with them and has come to get me to come and rescue them. And then he goes on to make some, some bold claims. He says, he, he's, he basically says that I went and I set free the exiles of various nations. And people, as they look at the Cyrus, the Cyrus cylinder, some people say that, you know, this is the charter document for human rights of our time. Because it, it tells us that the exiles are going to be set free. That they're going to allow them to rebuild their temples Sound familiar? We'll see that in just a a few weeks as we look at the story of Cyrus sending uh, the exiles back to rebuild their temple. He sent vessels back to each temple. This wasn't just to the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, he doesn't even list it in the Cyrus cylinder. He's sending back various nations to their various religious places and allowing them to take with them the vessels that were taken from their temple. Do you see a contrast here between him and Belshazzar at all? Belshazzar is taking those vessels and, like, let's have a party. Let's drink from these holy vessels. And, and Cyrus is like, no, I'm going to respect these people and their religion. Let's send it back to their temples. Let's let them rebuild their temples. And he establishes a time period of religious tolerance. And also, he established equity among the races that were there in Babylon. And so, in fact, you'll find. Uh, in various places, the, Persia has has taken this on as saying, hey, look, it, we actually are the ones that started appreciating human rights. And the United Nations has adopted this. And actually, the Cyrus Cylinder traveled around the United States for a while. But Cyrus the Great is looked at. He became king not long, within two years. Cyrus the Great is looked at as somebody that set people free. And isn't that what an anointed one should do? Notice what Chapter 45, verse 13 says, I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price, nor for reward, says the Lord of hosts. He's going to let my people go free. They're being oppressed. They're, they're being treated like lessers. They're being treated like captives. Friends, we're living in a world we well, 've got to stop evaluating people based upon what they look like, based upon how much money they look like, how much money they make, how hard they work, but as the child of God that they are. Well Jesus one day walked into the temple uh, into the, the uh, synagogue in Nazareth, and he begins to quote from Isaiah chapter sixty one Luke chapter four and verse and, and verse 18 and 19, say this, this is what he picked up the scroll of Isaiah and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I, I'm the anointed one by the Spirit. I am the Messiah, the Mashiach. Because he has anointed me, notice for what? To preach the gospel to the? He has sent me to heal the? There's some brokenhearted people in our nation right now. This is what we as disciples, followers, reflectors of Christ are designed to be too. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To set the captives free. This is the role of the Messiah. That's what Cyrus did. That's what Jesus did. That's what he wants to do for you and me. And that's what he wants us to do for the hurting world around us. Can you think of another time that a hand, the hand of God wrote something? You mentioned the Ten Commandments, right? Can you think of the, the, the Ten Commandments in context of judgment? James chapter 2 says it this way, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the? Say it, say it together, the? Law of liberty. We're going to be weighed on the balances. Will we have set people free? Or will we be amongst those who, in, who are a part of oppressing people? Who sit on our wealth, who try to preserve and to protect and to prepare for the end. Meanwhile, the world around us is hurting and dying. We have a choice. This is what it's about in the end. It's not about what you've seen on YouTube or Rumble or these other things. <laughs> It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the world gets crazier, this will become more and more crucial. That's why we're so passionate about having this farm up here. Because there's going to be people that need food. We believe it. And I don't just want it to be for me. Matt doesn't just want it to be for him. We want to feed all the Templeton and anybody else that we can for as long as possible because we want to make a difference in this world. But it wasn't just the Ten Commandments where God wrote with his finger. Can you think of another time? you think of another time? Yeah, the other time that I thought of was in John chapter 8. You remember that the Pharisees and the scribes, they bring a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. She's one of those people, the bad, filthy people that, that shouldn't be allowed around us. And she's brought to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, Moses commanded us to stone her. What do you command? And the judge's hand, it goes down, and it begins to write in the dust. I'm thankful that he writes our sins in dust. But as he writes in the dust, the people around him say, Jesus, apparently you weren't listening. What should we do? Should we we stone this woman? So Jesus straightens up. He says, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. Then he bends down and continues to write. Then it says, beginning with the oldest and going to the youngest, they fled from the presence of Jesus. They didn't want to be in the presence of the judge. Their knees were knocking. <laughs> Their hips lost joint. Because they were not among those that set people free. They were among those who condemned. They loved to watch things that told them about all the things that everybody else was doing wrong. And that's what got them excited. That's what let them know how they were going to survive the end. Rather than being one of those who was anointed to set the captives free. So speak and so judge as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Notice how verse 13 continues. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has what? You see what the judgment is about? It's about whether we've shown mercy to those around us. But look at what it goes on to say. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Can I get a hallelujah? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you know that God has been merciful to you? Extend that mercy to the world around you. And you are secure in the judgment. Another way to put it is this. Know and believe the love that God has to us and you are secure. That love is a fortress impregnable to all the delusions and assaults of Satan. Before we close with a couple of practical ideas, I just want you to listen to this song. This song that that brings to light who this God is. It's called God of the Poor. We've listened to it a time or two before, but There is such beauty in these lyrics. I'm going to read them to you real quick. Beauty for brokenness, hope for despair. Lord, in your suffering, this is our prayer. Bread for the children, justice, joy, peace. Sunrise to sunset, your kingdom increase. Shelter for fragile lives, cures for their ills. Work for the craftsmen, trade for their skills. Land for the dispossessed, rights for the weak. Voices to plead the cause of those who can't speak. Friend of the weak, give us compassion, we pray. Melt our cold hearts. Let tears fall like rain. Come change our love from a spark to a flame. Isn't that what you long for? Love to be set on fire, to be filled with the heart of God for this hurting world, to throw ourselves into the need of this world. We can only do that we only love because he first loved us. But there's just a couple practical things I want to give you as opportunities for you as you close. I mean, there can be big opportunities. I just talked to uh, Arnold Trujillo, a retired pastor and administrator of our church who has taken it on to do refugee and immigrant ministry for our conference on a volunteer basis. And he's motivated by what's happening in Ukraine and wanting to do that. So there's this practical of things, as he told me, I think this was on Wednesday or Tuesday I talked to him, he said, if you wanted to house a family from Ukraine, there's a pastor and his wife who have refugees, They're Adventist pastor and his wife, who somebody could house. There's a a mom with two children, or three children, that, that needs housing. So there's big things that could be done. There's the possibilities of another Hope Clinic. We have the, uh, the Hope Clinics that we've, we've done here and being able to minister to people. And, and I want to praise God about people being set free. You know who f- came to our Hope Clinic and then met Ralph at the door? Who met you, Ralph? Uh, who came back to say thank you? Mark. Mark Chris today has six months of sobriety and he attributes it to God's love, demonstrated through his church family. Thank you. You're being used to set people free like Mark, who's dealt with this for years and years and years. Um, there's other opportunities um, like last weekend, I told you that I was speaking for the homeless in the park during Sabbath school time actually, but they're going, that ministry, Hope and Faith, wants to start another day of going out on outreach on Thursday mornings from 7.30, I think it'll be, to like 9.30. If you're interested in that, let me know. If you text the word serve to our phone number, that's a different group than the join one that is general updates. If you do serve, then we'll give you more opportunities like this to serve. But all you got to do is look around. There's people all around you in need. They need our help. They need their lawns mowed. They need to know about your loving Savior. They need to know that love that can be a fortress impregnable to every assault that the enemy throws at them. God is your judge. He's on your side. God wants to reveal that to the world. Just invite you to bow your heads with me and just to ask God, what are some Practical steps that you want me to take. Ask God to reveal to you. Maybe that's the name of a person. Maybe it's a, a ministry that he wants you to spearhead. Maybe a small group in your home. Maybe somebody that you know of that's in need. Or somebody that just needs a caring card. Father, thank you for wanting to save us from our self-absorption. Thank you for the law of liberty that will judge us in the end. Thank you that you want to set us free through Jesus and that mercy triumphs over judgment. I pray that you'd come close to us and that you'd reveal to us ways in which maybe we haven't been merciful. Maybe ways in which we're stockpiling things that that could be used to benefit others. Father, would you reveal any part of our heart that looks like Belshazzar or Nebuchadnezzar before his conversion. And may we humble ourselves, accepting your incredible love, and not focus on ourselves, but look at the needs of the world around us and look at our loving Savior who's longing to meet them. Thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.